Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Hey, take your Bibles. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. The series has been looking at the faithfulness uh, of Samuel. It's, it's worth considering our own faithfulness. It's a character quality that we all need. We, we, you know, we need faithful moms and dads. We need faithful grandparents and government leaders and and faithful workers and employers and faithful pastors and teachers and professors and, and attorneys and nurses and doctors and, you know, machine operators. We need faithful all of those. It's really important. So what does faithfulness look like in us? And there's something also about faithful leadership. Sometimes leadership is more challenging than, than some seasons are more challenging than others. You know, I don't know if you've ever had, a, had to lead through a challenging season um, where your level of faithfulness just had to be ratcheted up a level. You know, everything just had to be taken up a notch because the circumstances demanded it. When, around here when COVID hit, and probably where you are too, when COVID hit, it required a new level of leadership out of us, things that we'd never done. We've grown and learned, and I mean, the last two years, has been a huge learning curve for the staff at Cross Lane, I can promise you that, where we've had to learn how to do some things in a new way. But it can be business leadership. Business leadership in and of itself can be difficult, but when you go through a recession, now you've gotta ramp things up, now things have to go to a whole new level. Church leadership can be difficult on a, just a, a, a normal, uh, in, a, in a normal setting. You know, ministry is a, is a huge blessing in my life, but I would be lying to you if I said that ministry isn't also taxing and, and demanding, and, and at times, you know, you, you're, you get a little, it, it can be difficult. And then you add to that that maybe a church goes through a hard time. Maybe the church splits. They lose their pastor. A new pastor comes in. Now, not only does he have to mend fences and build bridges, but he's also got to see to it that the financial situation is addressed. He's got to try to figure out how to get people, you know, thinking about the right things and, and not dwelling in the past. And and, uh, you know, there's just a lot of things. Pastoring is never easy, but pastoring under those circumstances would be way, way more difficult. It would require a whole new level of faithfulness and leadership. But it's not just companies. It's not just churches. It's families as well. You know, what worked for child number one doesn't necessarily work for child number two. And if you're a parent, sometimes you can just kind of pull your hair out trying to figure out, what do I do with this particular kid? And faithfulness needs to get ratcheted up in a challenging season. And I'm talking about challenging leadership situations because our leader, Samuel, it's not simply that he is leading, it's when he is leading that makes this particular season extra challenging for him. I would draw your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15. It says, Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. That's a long time. All the days of his life. Again, what's important here is not that Samuel is leading, it's when he's leading. The story of Samuel happens before the time of David. It happens before the time of the Old Testament kings of Israel. There have been no kings yet. Samuel is going to be the go-between between the judges of Israel and the kings of Israel. But when Samuel leads, he leads in a very difficult area, and part of Samuel's difficult job is to move the hearts of the people back to Creator God and to, and to, treat, to get them to treat each other more fairly and justly than they have. And as we saw last week, Samuel, from a military standpoint, one of his jobs is to get the hearts of the people right 
before they go into battle so that their hearts would be returned to God. Samuel is leading in an incredibly difficult and challenging time when the people of Israel are all over the map in terms of their relationship with God. And as we look at specific events that happen today and basically a sequence of events that happens today, what we're going to be shown is that we're going to see something about faithfulness that is, to, to some extent, it's boring, and to some extent, there's a redundance to it, and there's a sameness. Uh, in, in some aspects of faithfulness, it's not very sexy, and it's, it's not real interesting, right? Like, it's, there's no bells and whistles to it. Um, it has to do with this aspect of faithfulness that simply shows up over and over and over again. Be prepared this morning to be underwhelmed as you read the synopsis of Samuel's life in the verse that I read to you next. Are you ready? Here you go. Verse 16, from year to year, he, meaning Samuel, went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. Year after year after year, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah. Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah. And then he picks up a city called Ramah. Samuel is somewhat of a circuit rider. He's kind of like the old 1700 and 1800, the old Methodist circuit rider preacher that used to travel around to different towns and villages. He might have five or six different churches that he had to preach at on a particular Sunday, and he would travel from town to town to get to them and preach. It was, it was grueling work, what they had to do. Verse 17, but he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and where he also held court for Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. And then we turn to the next chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, and we read this. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. Now Samuel is old. What happened? Where did his life go? It went from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah to Ramah. And he did it again. And he did it again. And he did it again. There's an aspect of faithfulness, a faithful life that, that impacts and is influential and the banner above it says, and they got up and they did it again. And they got up and they did it again. Samuel did this when he was 36. He did this when he was 48. He'll do this when he's 52, when he's 67. Teaching, training, guiding. Just ask you, does that sound interesting to you? What is parenting? <laughs> this is parenting. We get them up, we get them fed. We get them off to school, we pick them up, we bring them home, we get them fed, we send them off, we get them coached, we get them played, we get them at home, we get them bathed, we get them into bed, we get them prayed, we get them back to bed, we get them back to bed, right? We get them back to bed. Monday. Tuesday morning, we get them up, we get them fed, we get them off to school, we pick them up, we get them fed, we get them coached, we get them played, we get them bathed, we get them prayed, we get them into bed, back to bed, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's parenting. That's parenting. And on the edges, you do some things that are interesting. Maybe you take a trip to Holiday World, maybe you go to Kings Island, maybe you take a vacation. You do some things that you've never done and you say, man, this is brand new and this is interesting and and we really like this, and man, this is fun, but at the core of every faithful, stable family is a routine, a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal 
to Mizpah, to Ramah. If you are bored by sameness, if everything has to be new all the time, you may miss out on the greatest opportunities in your life to have an impact and influence on the people around you that you love the most. Because at the core, it is this. And then she got up and she did it again. And she got up and she did it again. And she got up and she did it again. This is Samuel. Here's the goal. The goal is to bring our best self to the team. The goal is to not bring my cranky, demanding self to the team, but to open my hands and to say, Father, would you help me to bring my most patient, my most joyful, my most loving self to the team? Because this is about the thousandth time that we've done this. From Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah to Ramah. In the Christian Bible, there is a place in Galatians 5 where we come across something that maybe you're familiar with. It's called the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit are things that God can pull off of us that we could not pull off of ourselves. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We're talking about moms and dads here bringing their best self to the routine. Your most gracious, your most loving, your most joyful, patient, kind self to the tasks that you have done thousands and thousands of times. It, it may have happened for you like it's happened for me where I'm driving along on a two-lane highway or you know, a state highway and you come into this small town. I'm sure you've seen these. You come into this small town and on the outskirts of town there's a place there where they've got a sign erected and it kind of gives you the population and maybe a little synopsis of the history of the town that you can't read because you're driving. Um, you know, tells you who the mayor is, maybe something like that. One of the things you might see, and I've seen these before on different towns, is you know, uh, they, they maybe have won some state tournaments their high school is famous for. And you come into a town and it says, um, baseball state champs, 2000. 2002, 2003, 2007, 2010. And you, you, you see that and you think to yourself, man, somebody's getting something right. Five championships in 10 years. I guarantee you that behind that sign is someone who built a program and they did it through faithfulness and consistency. Whoever that coach is, there is variety. Every May he graduates players and every August he looks up and he has freshmen coming in and he's got to start all over and he's got to do some of the same. There's some variety. The kids change. Maybe the uniforms change. But you know, there's a lot of that that stays the same. There's a cycle there where the, the coach gives the same speech. They run the same plays. They do the same drills. The goals are always the same. They try to keep it as consistent as they can. Somewhere behind that sign is a banner that says, and he got up and he did it again, and he did it again, and he did it again. The goal is to bring your best self, not your grumpy self, not your, your selfish self, but your best self to your most redundant tasks. If everything has to be new, and if I'm bored with sameness, then I will miss out on the greatest opportunities in my life to have influence and impact on the people that I want to impact the most. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is your circuit? What is your circuit? 
Maybe for you, your circuit is, is uh, you know, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to come home and I'm going to play Xbox for four hours. Well, congratulations, you have a circuit, but I don't know how life-giving that is, right? Um, I told you about growing up, my, my mother, as I grew up, I li- we lived in a split-level house, and uh, I would be upstairs getting myself ready to go to school to either catch the bus or to walk, and and uh, be coming down the steps and you know we had one of those houses maybe you had one that had a living room that the kids weren't allowed to be in did you have one of those we weren't allowed to sit on the furniture in that particular house Um, that's the house mom had her that's the room that mom had her um, her her quiet time chair in and many many times I've told you this before many I, I mean it's when I think about my childhood it's one of the first thoughts I have is coming down the steps and seeing my mother sitting in her chair, Bible open, stenographer's pad out, making notes, taking notes, calendar there, telling her what's coming up. And we just, as kids, we knew that's mom, mom's having quiet time. Mom's doing Bible study. It was not uncommon for me to come down the steps and see my mother with her hand on her forehead, with her head bowed, and she was praying. I knew what she was doing. And in those quiet moments when no one else was around, middle of the day, I might slip over and sit in that chair reach over and grab that stenographer's pad and look down. And man, I just can't even describe for you what went through me when I would look down and see my name and know that my mother was praying for me. Look at the calendar and see my name there. Because I had something coming up and she knew that it, was, it either scared me or I was excited about it, or, but she was praying for me. And I would see it, I would see the list. You know, Brett, this is what's going on in Brett's world. Amy, this is what's happening with Amy, Melissa. This is, and I, I just, you knew that, that mom was, was praying for us, and she did it again, and again, and again, faithfully, morning after morning, morning. My mother had a circuit, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah to Ramah, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah to Ramah. She didn't miss, she was faithful. And Samuel is exhausting his life year after year with this holy redundance. And when he comes to a town and he gives spiritual counsel and there's someone who invites him over and he says, hey, thank you so much for your hospitality. And they say, no problem. Hey, we noticed that, uh, you know, your donkey's kind of old and run down. Um, You know, we want to help you. And so we've got some fresh, really nice donkeys here. We'd love for you to take one of our nice, fresh donkeys and and, uh, you know, maybe help you along on your journey. And, oh, by the way, you're going to be hearing our case in the morning in court. And, boy, it'd be great if you would remember that we gave you this donkey and just uh, maybe things could go our way tomorrow. And you can almost hear Samuel look back and say, is this a bribe? Are Are you trying to buy me with a donkey? Here's what you need to understand. Tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and I'm going to see you in court. And I'm going to listen to both sides of the argument. And I'm going to do the best I can to hear from God and to render a judgment that will demonstrate the justice of God. But I can promise you that I will not be swayed by somebody trying to give me some kind of bribe. I will not take your donkey. His whole life Samuel did not accept bribes. He administered justice. Samuel had two sons. We know their names. We know their positions, and as time goes on, he gave them responsibilities. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2, the name of his firstborn was Joel, 
And the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. And you hear that, and you think, wow, that's really cool. He's, now he's going to have some sons to work in the south in Beersheba while he is in the north in, in, in Ramah, and he won't have to travel as far in his old age, and it's just going to be better. And, and it's going to be awesome as he grows old, and he's getting gray, and he's finishing his run. He's handing off the baton to his faithful sons, and they'll be able to carry on his leadership that, that have gone on for all these years. Well, I've got some bad news for you. Verse 3, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. And I read that and it just makes me sick for Samuel. He spent his whole life trying to turn his, the hearts of the people back to God and administering fair justice. And his sons turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. We're not really told why. It's just dropped on us. This was, this was his existence. This is what happened. There are certain aspects of the life that a person lives that can be highly disappointing. And we have things and we hope certain things go a certain way and uh, you know, then they don't go the way that we had hoped that they would go. In this case, we're told that Samuel's sons are crooks. And Samuel wasn't a crook. For those of you who have kids that maybe didn't quite turn out the way you'd hoped or something happened and you think, man, why did it go that way? And you're tempted to feel like, man, we failed somehow. We didn't do it. Here's proof that you can do it the right way. Samuel was faithful. He's a faithful man. He tried to do things the right way and his sons just went a different way. And you just feel a deep disappointment and a heartache for what's happened, but it's about to get worse. Verse four, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And the elders here are the 12 clans, the 12 tribes, the leaders of the, the elders of these 12 tribes. And they say, we gotta go see Samuel. And so you have these clan leaders from Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh and Gad and Reuben and Asher and on down the line. And the clan leaders come together and they hold a meeting with Samuel. And this really is at the heart of their statement. They said to him, verse 5, you are old. Fact check, true. Samuel was old. You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a, a king to lead us such as the, all the other nations have. So you ask yourself the question, is Samuel being fired? Because it sure feels like it. You're old, thanks for your service and your leadership, but now we want something different. We want a king. What's really at issue here is security. That's really what's going on here. And as we get into this, we're going to explore what security meant to them, but we're all going to, also going to explore this morning what security means to us. But Samuel's troubled. They, they've asked for a king. We're told that he prays, but I think that you wouldn't be wrong if you thought to yourself it probably was less of a, of a prayer than it was a meltdown. I think it's possible that when all this starts happening to, to Samuel, he maybe loses it a little bit. And he basically says, God, they're replacing me. And God says, no, Samuel. No, they're not replacing you. They're replacing me. Verse 7, and the Lord told him, listen 
to all that the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. It is likely that the issue is not that Israel wanted a king, but why Israel wanted a king. And it becomes very clear in the next verses and the next chapter. What, what's, what's happening is Samuel reaches his senior years, uh, it, it's Israel is getting squeezed on both sides. On the, the, the western side, on the left side, you have Philistia, where the Philistines are. And then on the right, you have King Nahash and, and Ammon, and, and you know they're on the rise as well. And the Israelite army really isn't an army at all. It's really a bunch of farm soldiers, a bunch of farmer soldiers. It you know, it'd be like all of us in the room that have guns, and somebody says, okay, we're going to make an army. Well, we, we would have numbers, and we would have guns, and, you know, we might be a little probably more dangerous to ourselves than anybody, but, but we, you know, we wouldn't be trained. We wouldn't, maybe some that have been in the service would, but a lot of us would not know really how to organize, or it wouldn't be the same as if you had a standing army at the ready and ready to go, and that's really what the Israelites had. They just had these, these kind of amateur farmer soldiers was the only way that they could defend themselves. And the Philistines, on the other hand, have these standing armies, they have, they're, they're armed to the teeth, they have the, most, the latest in weaponry and technology, and, and they just, they've got it going on. And, and you know, on the, the eastern side, the Ammonites are on the rise as well, and the Israelites are scared to death. And they're thinking to themselves, listen, this farmer army thing is not going to work. We need a unifying factor. We need, a, 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 we need to lose this loose confederation of, of you know, tribes thing that we've got going on. We need a federal government. We need a standing army and a king that will lead us into battle or we're going to get wiped out. That is what's going on here. Here's a question. What's the setup between God and the people? The setup was this. Follow me. Get tuned into me. Don't worship other idols. Treat each other with justice. And when you get attacked, I am going to be with you. I'll be with you. You take care of other people. You get tuned into me. I'm going to be faithful to me. I'm going to be with you. That was the promise he made to them. And their response is, thank you, but no thank you. We need a standing army. We need a king. What we're seeing in the Israelites is an issue of security. You know, it's one thing to look at what they did and to see that they thought they needed a king in order to feel secure. But we, what we really need to do is to take a look at our own life and to ask the very important question. And the question is, where are you most likely to turn for a sense of false security? Where are you most likely to turn for a false sense of security. And I would hope that your response would not be, well, Brett, I don't do that. I would hope that you would say, yeah, I know what my plan A is. My plan A is to find security in this and fill in the blank. And, and I really think that if we were to take the time to go through the room and if people were going to be honest, we might have as many different responses as we have people in the room because you can put a lot of things in that, in that blank. You know, it might be a person who, who fills that space for you. It might be a thing. It might be a savings account. It might be some kind of achievement. 
But what was true of them and can be true of us is this. God is really interested in being God, and we seem to be very interested in taking something else and take God out of that top spot and inserting something else in its place. We seem to be really good at that. And so the question that we need to wrestle to the ground this morning is, what is that for me? Where do I do that? Jessica is entering the eighth grade. Jessica has a mom and a dad. Mom never finished her degree, and so she decides a little later in life she's going to go back and finish off that degree. This delights dad to no end. He's so proud of his wife, so proud of his daughter. He finds out that, that uh, his wife is going to go back, and he starts bragging about how smart she is, and he starts telling all of his friends she's going to graduate with honors. You watch. She's going to kill this. She's going to do awesome. Well, time comes. Wife gets ready to graduate. She misses honors by a fraction she walks the stage, she graduates with her cap and gown, but she will not have the honor cords around her neck. Dad tanks and almost goes into a depression because he's disappointed that she didn't do better. Eighth grade Jessica is watching all of this from a distance, quietly. And she makes a silent vow and she says, so help me God, I'm going to make the best grades, the highest grades possible. And now we watch her go through high school, and we watch her go through college, and every time a, a, a midterm approaches, every time a test paper gets ready to hit her desk, every time she gets ready to go look at what her score was, or every time the report card comes out, she is anxious. She gets nauseous. She is physically sick. It is as if her life depends on it, because as far as she's concerned, it does. Academic excellence has become her security. With it, she's somebody, and without it, she's nobody. And you say, well, Brett, academic excellence is good. I know, it's good, but it's not God. Brett, <laughs> academics was never my problem. Me either, by the way. Maybe for you, it's a savings account. Here's a question. How much money do you have to have in your savings account to feel like you've got enough? And the answer for all of us, if we're totally honest, is what? Just a little bit more. It's good. I, you know, it's, we worked on it. We've got a little nest egg. It's, it's awesome. But we, we could just get, a, I just want a little more and I could feel better. You say, Brett, financial health is a good thing. It is a good thing. It's just not God. Some of us are approval junkies. For us, it's all about applause. And when the applause is there, we feel like we're everything. And when the applause dies out, we feel as though we're nothing. How many of you know who Steve Martin is? Terre Haute kind of has a history with Steve Martin, do they not? How many of you have no idea who Steve Martin is? Let me see. No idea. Okay. Boy, do I feel old right now. How many of you remember Steve Martin, Wild and Crazy Guy? Remember when the album came out? How many of you had the album? Had the album. It was awesome. He was, he was great, but then he got older, and he became an actor, and then, I don't know if you know this or not, but he became like a, he's a very accomplished banjo player, really good, and I've enjoyed him through COVID because he, Steve has taken it upon himself to calm people down, and on his social media once in a while, you'll catch him, and he just is playing the banjo for you, just trying to calm us down, and so the wild and crazy guy kind of grew up into a mellow, kind of cool guy. Well, he wrote a book about his life, and he, uh, he was going to get awarded, and he, he was at the National Book Award Banquet, and um, 
you know, is up for an award, and, and he won the award. He was in the back of the room when they called his name, and so he gets up and he starts making his way through all the tables, and you know, everybody's applauding for him, and he's trying to make his way to the front and get to the podium and say a thank you, and people are, you know, they keep clapping, and he's still trying to make it through all the tables, and they're, they're still clapping. Finally, he gets to the platform, and they're able to stop clapping for him. And when he gets to the platform, this is what he says. That's the goal, isn't it? To try to get to the platform before the applause dies out. He's acknowledging just how fleeting achievement is. It's a powerful statement. If only we can get to the platform before the applause dies out, because when the applause stops, the silence is deafening. Are you somebody? Yes. Why? Well, I'm the number one salesman in our group. Oh. So what happens if next year you fall to number two, or God forbid, number three or number four? What happens next? Where's your security? Well, Brett, business excellence is a good thing. Business excellence is a great thing. It's just not God. Having a king wasn't the worst thing. <clears throat> there had been guidelines even established earlier in Deuteronomy that said someday when you have a king, these are the guidelines for the king. The issue is why they wanted a king. That's really the problem. And what they wanted was security because they were saying God is not enough for us. God will not rescue us. God will not, a king will save us. A king will give us security. And the question this morning is what is it for you? For some people it's beauty. From the time she was three years old, she was beautiful. Everybody told her how pretty she was. She grew up hearing how beautiful her eyes were. My goodness, look at the eyes on that girl. She heard it. She knows it. She goes through adolescence. She doesn't lose it. She's beautiful. She never wants for friends. Everybody wants to be her friend. She gets pretty much whatever she wants. It is guaranteed that there will always be a circle of people around her. Do not be surprised when she begins to fear aging. Not turning 50, turning 29. If my beauty slips, I will have lost my security. Brett, nothing wrong with physical beauty. No, there's nothing wrong with it. <clears throat> physical beauty is good, it's just not God. God desires deeply to be our God, and we, are, we seem to be very, very interested in taking something else and putting it in that slot. What is that thing or that person or that achievement that you cling to for security? It's important to know. Oh, by the way, if you don't know what it is, just ask your spouse, they can tell you. If they don't know what it is, ask your best friend, they can likely tell you. So what does God's security look like? What, what is that? In Ephesians, <clears throat> Paul wanted to talk to brand new Christians about their security, and the word that he uses is the word adoption. I, I would read to you from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in, <clears throat> in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
in a society where if you had a baby and for some reason you did not want that child, it was deformed, it came out with red hair, it was a girl and you wanted a boy, it was a boy and you wanted a girl, didn't matter the reason, if the father did not want that child, they would take it out, they would leave it on a hillside, it was called exposure, that baby would die of dehydration and hypothermia. And Paul says, your most defining moment in life is not, you're not defined by who dumped you. You're defined by who took you in. You're defined by who brought you into their home. And God has brought you into his home and he has said, you are my precious daughter. You are my adored son. Paul is going to infuse in them this sense of security. Those verses in the Bible that say things like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Through your cancer, through your unemployment, through your being deserted by someone, I will be with you. I will be with you in your disappointment, when you're confused, when you're grieving. I will never leave you or forsake you. That is security. The night before Jesus dies, he is with the disciples in the, in the upper room for the Lord's Supper, and he says to them in John chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now he's talking about the afterlife. He's talking about those who come to him, who know him, trust him in this life, and then on into the next. That is security. I have adopted you. I am with you. I will be with you now, and I will be with you forever. Other things, other gifts, they're good. They just are not God. So do you know? Do you know what it is for you? For them, it was a king. And the crazy thing about this story is that God gives the message to Samuel, give them a king, <clears throat> but first let them know what it's going to cost them. I would, uh, I would suggest to you this morning that re later on this afternoon or maybe tonight, some at some point today, take 15, 10 minutes. Sit down with your Bible, take 1 Samuel chapter 8, and just read chapter 8. And have a pen in your hand when you do it, because when you do it, I would suggest that every time you come across this phrase, you should circle it, because you're going to see a phrase about four or five times. And the phrase is, and the king took, and the king took, and the king will take. Samuel comes back to the people and he says, okay, you can have your king, but there's some things that you need to know first. You want a king? You want to have a standing army? That's great. But where do you think that the king is going to get his soldiers? He will take your sons. He's going to take your sons for his standing army. He's going to take your sons to be his servants, and he's going to take your best and brightest sons, and he's going to make them commanders and officers, and they will lead the charge into battle. He's going to take your sons, to which they might have replied, well, at least we have our daughters. Oh, no, no, no. He will take your daughters, and he will make them perfumers and cooks. He'll take them too. Well, at least we'll have our property. Oh, no. He will take your property. Who do you think, when these guys succeed in battle and it's time to reward them and it's time to give them their propers, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to take your property and he's going to give it to them 
and they will have your property. He will take that too. Well, at least we'll have our crops. Oh no, he'll take your crops as tax. And he will take, and he will take, and he will take. False gods often come at a very expensive price. They cost us something. And someone's attempt to turn a person or a thing or an achievement into a security, you see people that have done that, and what you hear them say later is, it cost me my marriage. It cost me my financial health. It cost me being me because I was turned into something that I didn't even recognize. Idolatry is costly. God replacements will always cost you something. The Israelites would have said, well, Samuel, thank you for that, but we still want a king. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, you see the selection of the king, the anointing of the king. You see the first achievements of the king. His name is King Saul. Samuel is the bridge in your Bibles between the judges and the kings. And King Saul is the first of the kings of Israel, and he is anointed, and he's good-looking, and he's tall, and the Israelites get attacked by the Ammonites, and Saul rallies the people, and they go to war, and they have this huge success, and they reaffirm Saul as their king. And then before Samuel moves to the shadows of the story, Samuel gives a farewell address. Now, Samuel is not going to completely disappear in the story. But his role is about to change, and he knows it. Samuel makes a statement, and then he's going to, make five, he's going to ask five stunning questions. Don't think that I'm going to spend a lot of time on these five questions. I'm not. We're almost done. You're like, dear Lord, he just came up with five questions. No, trust me. We're just going to read them. We're just going to read them, okay? This is what Samuel says. I have been your leader from, from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? I have, if I have done any of these things, I will make it right. Whom have, whom have I cheated? When did I take a bribe? Bueller? Anyone? Anyone? The people of Israel respond in verse 4. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they said. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. We're going to circle back to this at the end of the series, but this is what you see in Scripture. There are people who start miserably in Scripture and they end really well. There are some people that you see in Scripture that start really well and they end horribly. And then there's some people that start really bad. They go through a season where things are, are, are really miserable and then on the end of it, they, they finish pretty well and things go good again after they've made some colossally stupid decisions and, and it just, you know, they, they kind of come out of it. It's like, you know, the angels sing and it's all good. But very rarely do you come across somebody who is faithful in the beginning and in the middle, and in the end, and that is Samuel. Samuel's role is changing, and a part of him probably feels rejected, and a part of him probably feels really, really hurt. His advice has not been followed. Nobody cares about him anymore, and it would be really tempting for him to look at them and say, you made your bed, you lie in it, you're going to have trouble, don't come to me when it all comes falling apart. It would have been really easy for Samuel to do that. That's not how Samuel handles this. 
he bows out graciously. Verse 23, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. Two things that he says there. I'll pray for you, and I'll teach you the things that are good and right. Samuel says, I'm not going to be your political leader anymore. I'm just going to be your spiritual leader. But you can know this. I'm going to pray for you every single day. And I'm always going to call you to the right thing. I'm always going to show you how to do it better and, and to show you the good and the right things. Where do you think he will do this? In cities like Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and Ramah. The redundant cycle. Faithful Samuel over and over again. Samuel's role is changing. Some of the most significant tasks that Samuel will ever do have yet to happen in his life. In fact, the thing that I am, when I think about Samuel, the thing I think about most hasn't even happened. We haven't even talked about it yet. Samuel thinks his life is over. There's a whole lot for him to do. He's got to confront a king. He's got to call him out for his disobedience. We'll, we'll get into that next week. But for us, there are two questions that would greatly benefit us as we work through this today. If you, if you do that, if you sit down for 10 minutes with 1 Samuel 8, add these two questions to your things just to think about. What is your circuit? If it has to be new and bright and shiny and exciting all the time, you may miss the greatest opportunity you ever have to have an impact and an influence on the people that you are closest to if it's always got to be bright and shiny. If you can't see the opportunity in the mundane and in the redundance of some of the things that you do every day, you may miss it. What's your circuit? Where will it be said of you? And she got up and she did it again. And she did it again. And she did it again. Where will it be said of you? He got up and he did it again. He did it again. Question two. You will encounter this on the app. If you're following along in the app with the notes, uh, I think it's on Tuesday you're going to encounter this question. What are you most likely to turn to, to for a false sense of security? What are you most likely to turn to for a false sense of security? It is important that you know the answer to that question. When you know the answer to that, you are reminded it may be good, but it's not God. What does your cycle look like? What does your Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah to Ramah look like? When my kids were little, it just felt like I changed a million diapers. I changed, and I would have this thought, you know what, it's Tuesday and I'm changing diapers, but on Friday I'm going to be changing diapers too. And next week I'm going to be changing diapers. Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah to Ramah. You're going to bring your cranky, angry, muddled self to the team, or are you going to bring your faithful, kind, patient self? Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah to Ramah. What's your cycle? Just a reminder that people will be down front to pray with you at the end of the service if that's something that you desire. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we... Um, we all have a cycle. We all have uh, those mundane things that we're doing, and if we're totally honest, Father, we can sometimes lose sight of it, and we can just kind of mindlessly go through it, and I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon us that there is a, there's something to being faithful in those moments. 
There's something to the attitude with which we come to those moments. And Father, as we discharge our duties every day, let us not lose sight of the fact that some of the most important, impactful, influential things that we ever do happen in the mundane, redundant things that we do every single day of our life when nobody seems to be watching. And Lord, I just, I I think about my mother praying for me. And she did it again. And she did it again. And she did it again. Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah to Ramah. Show us, Father, what our cycle is and help us to be faithful in it. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.